and welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm privileged each week to serve as your interviewer and host. I'm also the author of the 10-volume book series for HarperCollins called Master Mentors, Volume 1 and Volume 2, both out now, where each year I am honored to curate 30 of my sort of favorite, most influential interviews on this podcast with the permission of the guest and write a short, easy, breezy chapter about a single transformational insight they share during the podcast, or sometimes even off air, because some of the good stuff happens in the metaphorical green room when we're uh, building some rapport beforehand or debriefing afterhand. But with their permission, I'm privileged to have now featured 60 guests on our way to 10 volumes for a total of 300 mentors in the Master Mentors series, available in audio, digital, print, and video books by Lit Video. Pick up a copy of Master Mentors. Looking forward to releasing volume three with 30 new mentors in the fall of 2023. Today's guest is the author of the book, Unreasonable Hospitality. You know him as literally a titan in the hospitality culinary industry, has uh, founded, led, run, worked in, and developed multiple restaurant concepts. Well, we'll listen today. You know, one of my favorite interviews in this entire five-year nearly series was with Colin Cowie about a year ago. Colin Cowie, the famous entertaining expert, hospitality expert that talked in his book, The Gold Standard, around that service is the new luxury. And I think today's guest is going to repeat the fact that service and hospitality are actually two different things and how can anybody listening and watching today, whether you're in marketing, advertising, operations, supply chain, sales, customer service, how you can make service and hospitality your differentiating advantage. His name is Will Gudera, and I told you he's joining us today from upward of New York City. His book is Unreasonable Hospitality. Will, welcome to On Leadership. Thank you so much, man. I'm really, really happy to be here. Will, I mentioned on this podcast that I have no credibility when it comes to movie recommendations. I've watched like five movies in my life, hence Austin Powers is my favorite movie, and you can tell that my credibility there is low. However, I know a few things about books, and I've written seven myself. I've read thousands. I've interviewed the greatest authors in the world as the privilege of sitting in this seat. I know a great book. Your book is a Bible when it comes to whatever business you're in. How do you differentiate yourself, your brand, your customer loyalty, from providing what you call unreasonable hospitality. Will, will you rewind and maybe share with us your journey and how you came to have the insights instilled in you by mentors and leaders throughout your career? This new book, Unreasonable Hospitality. Then we'll dive into about 15 of the key insights in the book. Yeah, you know, first of all, thank you. Those are really, really kind words, especially coming from you. And I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to be here and, and really excited that you enjoyed the book. I, I grew up in the restaurant business. One of the reasons why I felt somewhat of a responsibility to write this book is that I've been blessed to have uh, spent time with or worked alongside some pretty amazing mentors over the course of my career. First, my dad, a lifelong restaurateur who was an amazing operator who taught me about just so many of the fundamental things that go into being a good person and a good leader. Um, spending time under Danny Meyer at Union Square Hospitality Group, who really gave me the foundation from which I built um, the culture uh, of my company from that point forward. People like Wolfgang Puck, Daniel Balud, my time at Cornell, um, spending time at the Museum of Modern Art, 11 Madison Park, so many different places 
where I was able to learn so many lessons that I wanted to turn around and share with the world. Will, not, the entire world does not know what 11 Madison Park is. If you are a foodie or you're a, 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 an aficionado of fine dining, you might, but will you just give us a minute or so on why 11 Madison Park rolls off your tongue like Nordstrom or Barney's or Bergdorf's rolls off others? So 11 Madison Park was the restaurant I owned uh, for for over a decade. Um, it was a Danny Meyer restaurant, which I bought from him in 2006. But when I bought it, it was basically like a middling brasserie. It had two stars from the New York Times. Um, by the time I sold it, though, at the beginning of 2020, we had been named the best restaurant in the world, along with all the other accolades a restaurant can receive. Um, you know, the, the idea of one restaurant being the best in the world, let's just name it, that's kind of patently absurd. Um, what, what that list acknowledges is which restaurant is having the greatest impact on the world of restaurants. Many of the restaurants that topped that list before me did so by being relentless, by doing whatever it took, by being, well, unreasonable about perfecting and evolving the food that they served. I chose to focus on a different kind of impact, to focus on the one thing that would never change, which is the human desire to feel seen, to feel cared for, to feel a sense of belonging. We got to be number one in the world by being just as unreasonable as all those chefs were about what they served, but to point that relentlessness towards how we served that food. Perhaps more importantly, how we made the people feel that we were serving it to. Will, you start the book about 12 years ago when I think you perhaps and your business partner were at an annual banquet for what was the top 50 best restaurants in the world. And everyone hopes to be number one, no one hopes to be number 50, although you'll take 50 because you get invited. Recreate that story in terms of how you were rated in that top 50 to where you ended. And you kind of, you said it kind of casually as the best restaurant in the world <laughs> two years ago. Yeah, so we, we went, that was our first year on the, on the list. And, and when you go to that ceremony, you know you're on the list of the 50 best restaurants. You just don't know where on the list you stand until you get there. And they count from 50 down to one. And I like to gamify everything. And so I started guessing based on where I was sitting, the seats were assigned, relative to where some of the greats were sitting, where we'd fall. I think I guessed number 35, my partner, always a bit more optimistic, guessed number 25. I'm sure there was some amount of like welcomes and thank you for comings before it started. But all I remember is them saying, and coming in at number 50, a new entry from New York City, 11 Madison Park. <laughs> um, we had come in last place. I, my dad always says adversity is a terrible thing to waste. And I get it. I'm not uh, absent perspective. We were one of the top 50 restaurants in the world. But in that room, we were last. And that caused a bit of a reckoning. Um, we went through the stages of grief, really simmering on anger for a while before we got to acceptance. Um, recognizing that, listen, we were excellent. Our food was excellent. Our service was as close to technically perfect as possible. Our dining room was one of the most beautiful out there. And it was for that reasons we'd gotten onto the list, but we had not yet done anything impactful. When I was a kid, my dad gave me a paperweight. It's still on my desk today. It says, what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? He always encouraged me to answer that question honestly, um, saying that many refuse to for fear if they say their most audacious goal out loud and fail to achieve it, they'll let themselves and those around them down. But if you don't have the confidence and conviction to say it out loud, you're unlikely to ever achieve it. 
that night over a bottle of whiskey at the hotel after we left an embarrassment coming in last place, I wrote on a cocktail napkin, we will be number one in the world. But underneath it wrote the impact that I wanted to make in order to earn that position. And those were the two words, unreasonable hospitality. So let's be clear. You came in last place as one of the top 50 restaurants, 50 in the world. And then last place was quite an insane honor. And then you, through deliberation and intention, became the best restaurant in the world, hence the term unreasonable hospitality. I, I grew up working for the Walt Disney Company, spent four years in Orlando, where I'm from originally, was steeped in customer service in the Disney way, and then was privileged to serve 25 years, now 27, associated with the Franklin Covey Company, a company that I think cares deeply about service. And your book is a, is a, is a manifesto, if you will, for how do you create remarkable hospitality. I think it's a book that every sales leader should be reading to make sure that their customer-facing team, their non-customer-facing team reads, because you spend as much time talking about serving customers as you do serving each other, right? Is mm -hmm. in the worlds of Hort Schultz, who we've interviewed, ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. And we're gonna talk yeah. about some of those principles. Your book is a masterpiece in hospitality. It's also a very tender book, although you dedicate it to your father the, the opening really is very touching about your mother and your mother's health and your mother's passing and your time at Cornell Hospitality. Will you take a few minutes and talk about your mother's struggle, her legacy, and also the impact she had on your early life? Yeah. My mother and my dad were both in hospitality, um, although my, my dad was running restaurant companies. My mom was a flight attendant for American Airlines. But this is back in the day when that was a, a job that commanded serious pride. She took her work very seriously. She derived significant and genuine pleasure out of serving other people. But then when I was four, through a couple of things that happened at work where she made some mistakes, she went to the doctor and eventually came to discover that she had been diagnosed with brain cancer. Um, they operated on her, uh, but the radiation treatment that they used during the operation was very unrefined at that point. And the, the radiation damage that ensued incrementally over the years to follow rendered her into a quadriplegic by the time I was about 10 or so. Um, she was only given a few years to live. She lived until mere hours after I graduated from college. Proof to me that you can actually talk things into existence. But man, listen, if I could go back in time and, and make it such that my mom never had cancer, obviously I would though I can't help but recognize that her condition made me the person I am. I don't think it's possible to know how to give hospitality until you first know how good it feels to receive it, and two, until you've known how good it feels to give it. And my dad, watching him respond to my mother, he worked restaurant hours, 14, 15 hours a day, but still every single day, woke up, got my mother out of bed, put her in a wheelchair, showered her, got her ready, fed her breakfast, went to work, came back 15 hours later, did the whole thing in reverse and still had time to be a good dad to me. I watched with awe at the amazing way in which he served his family during the most adverse time. And I wanted to turn around and be able to serve others like that over the course of my life. But in addition, it was a team. I had no choice but to serve my mother. During a time when the mother would normally be serving the kid, I was the one that was cooking her dinner at night and feeding her. And 
did I want to do that in the beginning? No, but did I very quickly come to recognize how good it felt to be able to serve someone I loved? Absolutely. And that became the thing that I wanted to do with the rest of my life, serving people, not just my mother who couldn't get through the day without being served, but to give that same level of genuine heartfelt service to people who maybe needed it just for other reasons, whether it was to help them celebrate or forget or to show them the beautiful impact of kindness. I love my mom. I'm sorry that she's not with us anymore. And I hate that she had to suffer in the way that she did, but I am also very confident that I am who I am today because of her. Well, I think it was very fitting that Simon Sinek, a friend of yours, wrote the opening of your book because your book is more than a book on hospitality. Your book is a leadership book. Your book is a book about accountability. Your book, in many ways, is a parenting book. The conversations you have with your father about intentionality, we'll get to in just a minute, are some great business lessons. I want to level set and then get deep into some of these lessons. Will you re-explain, for those of us yet in life that haven't had the opportunity to have a fine dining experience? I'm not referring to Outback or McCormick and Schmick's or, you know, Ruth's Chris. But in fine dining, there is an intentionality that is remarkable. The way servers move throughout the dining room. How they do or do not touch the table. How they turn their body when they serve certain foods. And how they do or don't make eye contact with the guests and how you chose to redefine some of that. Will you just sort of level set everyone on what true fine dining means and how that is differentiated from perhaps what we think of fine dining to be? Yeah, I mean, what true fine dining means and, and, and for me, what true fine dining is, is the great restaurants that approach this in the right way, because there are plenty of fine dining restaurants that don't, but the great ones do. Those are those that apply just relentless intention to every single touch point that the guest has with the with with the brand. Um, and when I say that, by the way, most organizations don't fully recognize how many touch points they have with their customer. And I actually genuinely believe that if more businesses interrogated the number of touch points they have with their customers and identified all of them, they discover they have a lot more than they think. And in identifying them, they'd have the opportunity to elevate them to pretty extraordinary highs. In a restaurant, that means being intentional about every single thing. What happens when a guest calls you for the first time? What happens when they walk through your doors? What's the level of the lighting? What's the level of the music? What are the songs that are playing? What are the words that are used when the server approaches your table for the first time? When does the menu come to you? What you said, what side of your body is the food served from such that they're able to maintain eye contact? How do they give you information? Do they give it to you all at once or do they give you small bites in the beginning and engage whether you're interested in learning more? Fine dining is about being intentional. It's about being choreographed. It's about creating calm in moments of chaos. And it's about doing whatever it takes for someone to feel seen, to feel a beautiful sense of belonging, and to feel a genuine sense of connection with the restaurant and by definition with one another. At a great fine dining restaurant, if you and I go in, you and I should not only be wowed by the food and the lavishness and all of that, but at the end of the meal, you and I should feel a little bit closer to one another than we did before we walked through the doors. Will, I don't have a lot of pet peeves in life. Uh, I try to live a very grateful, abundant life, however, my biggest pet peeve, and I eat out between two and three times a day. I'm married, we have three boys, I like to eat yes. out. 
One of my biggest, the biggest pet peeve I have in life is walking into a restaurant. It, it might be the Cracker Barrel, or it might be, you know, a high-end restaurant. And inevitably, the host says to me, I walk in, can I help you? And I'm tempted to say, yes, I'd like to buy two ice skates. And I'd like, <laughs> a, I'd like a hockey rink. And I, and I look at them and think, why do you think I am here? Yes, I want to eat. And then, if that's not offensive enough, I'll walk in and they'll, the opening will be, um, hello, do you have a reservation? And so immediately I think, oh, I'm shamed because I don't. And inevitably I might say no. And, they say, and I say, is that a problem? Oh, no, no, I'm just asking. It seems like that might be like the third question you asked when you greet someone for the first time. I think that restaurants, this is a metaphor and literal, tend to undervalue the importance of that first experience when someone walks in the door. I know I've given it as a restaurant experience, but every Every chief customer service officer should be obsessed with these touch points. I'm guessing in your restaurant, the first question a guest is asked when they're walked in the front door and the lady at the podium or the young man isn't saying, can I help you? No, yeah, and first I would say most customer service businesses drop the ball in this moment. And it's such an unfortunate moment to drop the ball because, okay, this is my view on restaurants. The food, the service, the design, they're simply ingredients in the recipe of human connection. Um, Think about it like any time you're meeting someone new. In order to meaningfully connect with someone, you need to get them to lower their guard, right? For all of you listening, what, <laughs> what happened before we started recording was a bunch of banter, some jokes. He is really, really good at engaging his guests such that once he press record, we are at ease and willing to really open up and be vulnerable in conversation. Anyone that's really good at Connection understands that the first and most important thing you want to do as quickly as possible when you engage in a relationship is get people to let their guard down. Putting them on the defensive, asking them if they have a reservation, saying, can I help you? That's not the way to do that. The way to do that is to make them feel welcome. And the first and only thing that anyone should hear when they walk into your business is exactly that. Welcome. Express gratitude. How many times in customer service do we walk into an environment and the person we talk to first makes us feel like they're annoyed that we're there or similarly makes us feel like we should feel lucky to be there? I always want to run and interact with gratitude first organizations, ones that say welcome and ones that make me feel that they feel lucky I'm there. You described many high-end retailers and jewelers up and down Madison <laughs> Avenue in New York City. I walk in ready to buy my wife a extraordinary Christmas gift, ready to spend, right? My annual Christmas savings. And, and there's some stores that make you feel like you should be honored that they let you in. And there's others that, you know, fawn all over you. Let, let's move on. Uh, I do think, I think if you haven't yet, you should have a master class on all of those touch points, helping map companies out what all the touch points are. Stay tuned, I'm sure. Uh, first concept. You say intention means every decision from the most obviously significant to the seemingly mundane matters. To do something with intentionality means to do it with thoughtfully, thoughtfully, with clear purpose and an eye on the desired result. Riff on that. 
I think when you actually slow down for long enough to think about how you approach the most mundane tasks, you find an opportunity to do them in a way that really has an impact. You can, I, I believe when you look at the steps of service, the touch points throughout an experience, sometimes the smallest enhancements to the least obvious touch points can have the most dramatic impact on the overall experience. I'll give you an example, the check. The moment that a check is dropped at the restaurant is one of the hardest moments in the restaurant. Time moves at a glacial pace the moment someone asks for a check. If it takes you too long to give them the check, you undo all the goodwill you built over the hours leading up to that moment. Similarly, you can never drop the check on someone's table before they've asked for it because they start to feel rushed. A lot of businesses would take that, a pernicious problem, and just try to push harder to get it right. Or you could slow down show some intention and a little bit of creativity and find an unbelievable outcome. The solution we came up with was we'd walk over to the table with a bottle of cognac and two glasses and we'd pour a little splash of cognac into each glass and then leave the bottle behind telling the guests, this is what our compliments, help yourself to as much as you'd like. And the check is right here whenever you're ready for it. It was a brilliant grace note at the end of a meal, one that A, solved the problem I just identified, B, left them with a sense of unreasonable generosity, even though the, most of the time, very few people drank more than a couple sips of cognac. Um, and C, showed that sometimes the best way to solve a problem is to give more, not less. We were intentional about that small moment and through applying a bit of intention resulted in a really beautiful end to the experience. I think a lot of people don't show enough intention to the less important parts of their business experience. And in doing that, lose out on a lot of opportunities to do really, really great things. Well, when we opened, I mentioned um, perhaps a mutual friend of ours, Colin Cowie. Today, he still probably is my favorite interview because he, like you, has systematized customer service and hospitality in his businesses. Remarkable interview. It's an icon I believe in the in um, in the the era of you know service as luxury. You also write extensively about the systemization of hospitality. Will you share the parking meter story and maybe explain to everyone why that can be replicated in their own business, regardless of what industry they're in? Yeah, we talk about uh, putting intention to intuition. Um, I think when you have good people on the team, you do things kind of reactively or organically that give people a heightened level of hospitality. When you do, you need to hold on to them. One of the things I always say is that athletes go to the tapes and they've had a bad game to see what they've done wrong. They don't often enough go to the tapes and they've had a good game to see what they did well and put systems behind those things to ensure that they continue happening. Um, the parking meter thing was... One time, a long time ago, at one of my first restaurant jobs, one of the guests was uh, saying that they needed the food to slow down for a minute so they could go and fuel their meter. And I just naturally said, hey, where's your car? I'll go do it for you. When I saw the look on that person's face after I did that, it became clear that that was something that needed to be systemized. And so we started training the hosts when they were walking people to their table to engage them in conversation. How did you get here? If they said, I drove, where did you park? If they said in front of a meter to follow up by saying, oh, great. Well, you're gonna be here for a little while. Tell us where your car is. We'll keep the meter full throughout your dinner. It's a small touch. Cost the restaurant nothing more than a few quarters. But by systemizing it, 
it resulted in this constantly occurring, unbelievable gesture of hospitality that happened to a lot of the people that joined us. I believe that hospitality in many cases is just about simple pattern recognition. And if you can identify those patterns in advance and give your team the resources to thoughtfully react to them every time they come about, the kind of thing you can accomplish is pretty amazing. You look at people selling cars. People buy cars for the same reasons. Either you had a couple of kids, you need a minivan. The kids have gone off to school. You're ready for a smaller car. Your kid just turned 16. You're buying them their first car. If we could actually identify those patterns, build small gestures, have them in the back in a toolkit is what I like to call it, such that we're ready to react to those moments when they come about. The level of hospitality that we and the people that work for us can easily and consistently give to people is amazing. For a kid that just turned 16, have a bunch of AAA memberships loaded up and ready to go. For someone that's buying their first minivan, have a little cordless dustbuster ready to give them when they leave so that the kid doesn't destroy their new car within a week of getting it. I think you understand where I'm going. Small gifts that react to recurring moments, whether it's a few quarters in a parking meter or a AAA membership, have the impact to take these ordinary transactions and turn them into the kind of experiences that result in lifetime relationships with the people you're serving. Will, pull this theme through. Uh, talk about the 95-5 concept and how it relates to gelato spoons. <laughs> so I have a thing called the rule of 95-5. Um, and what that means is I manage my money like a crazy person 95% of the time such that I can spend it, quote, foolishly 5% of the time. But I say quote foolishly because I don't think it's foolish at all. I think it's in that last 5% spending money in a way that other people would consider foolish that you actually create the kind of lasting memories that really transform your brand from good to great. Um, the reason other people consider them foolish is because some things are hard to put a return on. There's that old adage, what gets measured gets managed. A lot of the times the grace notes around hospitality are hard to measure, but that doesn't mean they matter less. In fact, many times it means they matter more. Um, you're talking about the spoon I got when I did this gelato card at the Museum of Modern Art. It was my grace note and the experience. Everyone, when you went to any of these gelato cards, they had these cheap little plastic spoons. I indulged in something iconic and really beautiful and disgustingly expensive because I believed that small note transformed the entire experience and took it over the top. But it goes further than that. The quarters I just talked about are the 5%. That AAA membership is the 5%. And that 5% got an extra workout at 11 Madison Park once we started doing this dream weaving concept, which is the thing that ultimately made us number one. Um, but the only way you're allowed to spend that 5% foolishly is when you're really disciplined in how you manage your money the other 95% of the time. Well, it might sound like I'm pandering to you, but I, can, I have some credibility when it comes to reading and writing and publishing books. Your book is a book on hospitality. Your book is a book on anticipation in sort of, you know, we're gonna get back to the word grace notes. You've used it several times. Your book is a leadership book, it's a parenting book. But honestly, I think above all that, it's a career book. Because I think the best part of your entire book 
is you talk about this difference, and it's an industry-specific term. You call it, I think, uh, the two types of restaurants that you manage. Uh, uh, it's when you went oh, back kind of behind the smart. scenes. Yeah, restaurant, restaurant smart restaurant, versus corporate smart. Restaurant smart versus corporate smart. You took a bit of a zigzag in your career. You're, you're, I loved the relationship you have with your dad. I have three young sons that are 8, 10, and 12 with my wife. And I've taken a lot of parenting advice because I want to be the dad that your dad was to you. Will you talk <laughs> about the difference between being restaurant smart and being corporate smart? Because although it is industry specific, it has enormous value in everyone's career. Yeah, so I was working for Danny Meyer, one of the great restaurateurs in America, if not the world. And I loved it there. And my dad ultimately made me quit <laughs> to go work with a different company called Restaurant Associates. Um, and the reason he did was because he wanted to make sure that I was, as I was evolving through my career, not only was I working every position from the ground up, his, his thesis was always that if I hadn't spent time in every single position of the people I would one day manage, that I wouldn't have the amount of empathy required to be the leader he wanted me to be. But he also wanted me to make sure that I was working and learning from different types of companies. The difference between restaurant and smart and corporate smart is basically where their highest paid people are. Um, in restaurant smart companies, and by the way, the, we can say unit smart, right? Any customer service organization that has a corporate office and then units that have the frontline employees working inside of them. Um, if the highest paid people are in the units, in the restaurants, then there's gonna be a greater sense of ownership and creativity and the guest experience is going to be better. In a corporate smart restaurant where the highest paid people work in the corporate office and therefore a lot of the autonomy exists in the corporate office, um, you're gonna have better controls, better profitability. They're going to be better businesses. My dad wanted me to learn from both because he hoped that one day I would be able to run a restaurant that was both restaurant smart and corporate smart. Because you go back to that 95.5, the only reason I was able to have the best restaurant in the world was because I also understood how to make it a good business. I was able to earn enough money that I could splurge on the things that took the experience and transcended it to a place that no one else had ever brought it to. But that doesn't happen if you show just as much excitement and creativity and discipline about the business as you are the creative elements of the experience. Well, uh, anybody who's looking to build their career like you built yours, your book is a playbook. Uh, in today's society, we hear a lot about portfolio careers where people wanna work somewhere for you know, 18 months and 24 months and one year and two year. When I was raised, you would have been a pariah. Now that's very natural. Yes. Um, loyalty is a, a dubious term, right, when it comes to being loyal to an organization for multiple decades and you feel like they weren't loyal to you because there's a cost-cutting act activity or a, a, a merger and acquisition or whatever it is. Um, I believe it was in your transition from your career at the Metropolitan Museum of Modern Art where you were invited to come over to Madison and you were struggling with that. You really wanted to work at, at Shake Shack of all places. Yeah. And there's some great <laughs> stories about Shake Shack, but I think the best line in the entire book might be, if you want them to be there for you when you need them, then you need to be there for them when they need you. Would mm. you unpack that story and teach that lesson? Yeah, so I was working at the Museum of Modern Art. Danny Meyer asked me to go be the general manager at 11 Madison Park. 
I wanted nothing to do with fine dining at that point in my career. I wanted to be at Shake Shack. And so I struggled with the offer and I went to my dad for advice as I always did. And that's what he said to me. In other words, he said, hey, if you want to grow with Shake Shack, which was also owned by Danny Meyer, if you want them to be there to support you and helping you realize your dreams, you need to be there and support them. I think it's one of the things that a lot of people struggle with, um, especially in this modern day with a lot of staffing issues and whatnot. People think that it's the company's role to serve the employees. And that is not the reality. It's our collective roles to serve one another. And that goes up and down and across hierarchies. The only way that you can expect the people you work for to give relentlessly to you is if you're just as willing to put yourself second and give relentlessly to them at times. Now, I'm not advocating for companies to take advantage of their team. Listen, hospitality is about relationships. Relationships are a two-way street. You need to have enough self-respect to expect people to be kind and generous in your direction, but you can't expect that to happen if you're not willing to do the same in return. Well, I'm guessing some people, maybe perhaps on the early end of their career, might be thinking that's naive. That, well, I can show loyalty to my employer all day long, but that will never be returned to me, either because I work for a poor leader or that leader doesn't have the power to give that back to me. I want to pivot to a different idea and have you draw some correlation to them. You write further into the book as you're giving some great leadership advice. Every manager lives with a fantasy that their team can read their mind. And you say that in the context of praise in public and provide correcting feedback in private. I'm guessing you might say it's also important for individuals to own their career and perhaps say to their leader, hey, I'd like to give you the next 18 months all in an exchange. Could you be helpful in helping me live this dream or that dream? You can't just expect that your leader knows you're being loyal to them. You might have to actually put it into words that you are doing your best to show loyalty and you hope it'll be returned. How would you advise on that? I mean, I've always said to the people that work for me, and I've always encouraged other people who don't work for me to engage these conversations with their bosses, that if your boss doesn't know where you're trying to go with your career, that's a failure on your part. Yes, okay, I would love to be in a place where every single boss engaged those conversations with the people on their team. But I think it's really, really important to have those conversations, not on day one, not even on month three, you want to Make sure the people you're working for don't think that you're already thinking about your next step before you've even settled into the the current one. But once you have settled in, in any sort of meaningful way, it's important that the person you work for knows what your dreams are so that you can identify very quickly whether they're the kind of person that's going to help you get there. And if so, such that they have the tools and the knowledge to play that role in your life. And by the way, I want to say two things. One, every time I go to a school and give a talk, The advice I always give is when you are looking for the first few jobs, forget about the company and focus on the leader that you will be working for. Of the many things we learn, very few of the skills are evergreen except for leadership. The most important thing we should all be looking for in any job is not how famous the company is, not how much we're gonna get paid, this is in their first few jobs, But how great is the leader you're going to be working for? How much can you learn from them? How much can you trust them? That should be the center of the decision. Because if you have a great leader who's investing in you and who you can trust, everything else starts to quickly fall into place. 
Well, I'm mindful of our time. I want to get at least two or three concepts in before we're done. Uh, I'd like to talk about the role of an expediter in a, in a fine dining restaurant because I found it fascinating how you described that role, how integral that role is to the timing and the experience that someone has. And I want you to back into that, into this quote. A leader's responsibility is to identify the strengths of the people on their team, no matter how buried those strengths might be. And you have a great story to tell about how that came to life with someone moving into the role of expediter. First, start with, and don't shortchange this, what does an expediter do? The expediter is the person in the kitchen that is effectively air traffic control between the kitchen and the dining room. So you think about it, especially in a fine dining restaurant where people are having four or five, six course menus um, and call it 30 tables. That's a lot of plates that's coming out of the kitchen and needs to get to the dining room. It takes someone with surgical precision and unbelievable organization to make sure that every plate gets to the right person at the right table within the right amount of time. They're managing not only the entire team of cooks that are cooking the food, but also the team of servers that need to make sure that the right food is getting to the right place. The expediter in a fine dining restaurant is one of the hardest jobs on the entire team. Um, the quote about finding the buried strengths of the people on your team is an important one. I think every leader has an obligation to spend enough time getting to know the people on their team such that they can identify their strengths and put them in a position that they can be the most successful. One of the things that everyone's complaining about right now is how hard it is to hire and staff their organizations. And how many times do we let someone go from the team because they're not doing a good job in the role they're in? I would go so far as to say that half of the people we let go because they're not successful in the role they're playing in that moment could have been remarkably successful in a different role if we got to know them well enough to know where else in the organization they could find success. This guy named Eliazar Cervantes, who was a food runner at our restaurant, was not a great food runner. He wasn't passionate about food or the hundreds of ingredients that people needed to learn to thoughtfully explain every single one of the dishes. But the more time I spent with him, the more I got to learn that he was a really great leader, unbelievably organized. And when given a bit of responsibility, he owned it. And so rather than firing him, like a lot of my colleagues wanted to at the time, I moved him into that important role of expediter. People thought I was crazy taking someone that wasn't succeeding in one role and moving them into an arguably a more important role. But once he was in that role, he flourished to the point that he became one of the most important people in the restaurant for the next decade. When someone is not succeeding, we have two roles. Try to invest in them to make them succeed in the role they're in but also get to know them well enough to identify whether they're the role, whether they're in the role they're meant to be in. Or as you said, if that doesn't work also, help them find their joy somewhere else, right? You talk a yes. lot about your role as a leader, helping get someone to a better place in their life. Uh, lastly, you worked with a gentleman named Christopher Russell. You call it the Christopher speech. And actually yes. it took me off guard because you wanted to give this speech several times as you were promoted, but you didn't think you were ready for it. You didn't have the credibility, the rapport, the trust with your team, and you delayed giving this speech until the time was right. But this is the speech, you call it the Christopher speech. This is a general yeah. manager of a restaurant gathering his or her team together, and this is what he says. I'm so excited to be here. I believe in and love this restaurant with all my heart. I'm also clear about what my job is, which is to do what's best 
for the restaurant, not to do what's best for any of you. More often than not, what's best for the restaurant will include doing what's best for you. But the only way I can take care of all of you as individuals is always putting the restaurant first. An impactful soliloquy, you used it later in your career when you felt you had earned the trust to do so. Unpack the power of that mindset. You know, I, I, I think that these days, people are prioritizing things incorrectly based on the best motivations, but in doing so, kind of selling everybody short. Um, Listen, we all want to be great leaders. We want to support and take care of the people on our team. We want to be kind. We want to be generous. But people forget that if you don't prioritize the organization as a whole always, then you'll never have the capacity to support any of the people within it. What I loved about that speech, and this is a mark of a great leader, was that he was setting very, very clear expectations at the beginning of his tenure in that role to his entire team about how he would make decisions. I think it's one of the best things you can do as a leader. Obviously, be consistent, but tell people in advance what they can expect for you and then be consistent in living up to those expectations. I was inspired by it. He not only set expectations, but he told the people on his team how he would navigate through decisions. When you remove people feeling surprised by your decision making, people can certainly disagree, but they can never say, that you defied expectations or did something unjust because you set very clear expectations up front. You know, this book is a hospitality book. And so I think when a lot of people pick it up, they think it's just going to be about doing fun, cool things for other people. But what it really is me trying to do is talk about how you build a foundation through intention, through systems, through management, through leadership, such that the team collectively can be unleashed in their most fully realized way to bestow incredible graciousness on the people they serve and then by definition one another as well. Because when you set that foundation and you can give your team the permission and the resources to be creative about coming up with amazing ways and how they're serving other people, I think it, it's, it's the thing that transforms an organization. Um, you know, the U.S. used to be a manufacturing economy. Now it's a service economy. I believe it's becoming a hospitality economy because I don't think making good products is enough anymore. I don't think serving them efficiently is enough anymore. I think it's now about how we make one another feel that matters most of all. And that's what I tried to get across in this book. Will, on my last question, your dog finally gave up and jumped on the sofa and fell asleep. So I'll end this uh, interview with this last question. <laughs> your dog needs a my walk. My executive right assistant. Now. That's my executive assistant. Uh, Will, you've dropped this phrase several times in the last 40 plus minutes called grace notes. And usually it was attached to something extraordinary, but consequential, but kind of insignificant of effort. It just took care. Um, explain to us the importance of integrating grace notes into our life? Um, you know, it's the little things that matter. Um, I, I believe that if we all start to look closely enough, we'll find opportunities for unreasonable hospitality for those grace notes all around us. Um, it requires being present. 
It requires slowing down enough and actually listening to the people around us such that we can hear the things they're saying and all the things they're not saying, such that we can pick up on the little things that we can do to, to really make them happy. It requires taking what we do seriously, but not taking ourselves too seriously. I think far too many customer service uh, businesses focus so much on building these perfect brands that they let these self-imposed standards get in the way of them doing the things that will make other people happy. And it requires the acknowledgement that if the goal is genuine hospitality, if the goal is to make people feel genuinely seen, then one size fits one. For me, a beautiful grace note is when you pay attention to the people around you, when you don't let arbitrary standards get in the way of you doing the thing that will make them feel served. And when the gestures you bestow upon them are ones that make sense only to them. Um, and if we all invest a little bit more time, an extra 5% into these grace notes, if we're all a bit more relentless, perhaps a bit more unreasonable in our pursuit of relationships and in finding these moments of connection, I think it's pretty amazing what we can collectively accomplish. I should end there based on the beauty of that, but I'm not. <laughs> uh, I am a struggling <laughs> entrepreneur with some fledgling success. And I think the, the biggest concept, the most impactful concept I'm taking away from your book, other than the, when the time when I read the opening and I, and I cried um, about your story about your mom, I set it down and I was, I was teary-eyed and I just sat on it for a few moments and thought about it. Mm. Lost my father about six months ago. Um, was I'm granola. sorry for your loss. Thank you. The story about granola. Because it's such a great story about how when you would have customers leave the restaurant, there was sort of one last grace note, if you will. Will you talk about the power of that switch to granola and how every leader, every entrepreneur, everyone with a side hustle, uh, 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 an Etsy store, a garage sale, an Instagram, <laughs> whatever it is, talk about granola for a moment. And I'll let you go, I promise. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to. I think there's two elements to that story. First, this is something that's, that a few restaurants do, and I, I think more businesses should follow suit, which is at the end of the meal, they give you something to take home with you. It could be a muffin, a, a pastry, just something such that the next morning you wake up still thinking about that restaurant by the way, is a goal that we should all be pursuing is how do you make sure that the experience extends beyond what is normally considered to be the end of the experience? Um, when I got to 11 Madison Park, the thing that we were serving to people was a cannelé. If you're not familiar with what that is, I'm not surprised. It's not that famous. It's a really technically challenging pastry to make. Um, it's the kind of pastry a baker will make when they're trying to show people, look what I can do. It's tasty to some. It's not universally beloved. It's a fancy, fine dessert. It's more about the person making it than it is the person receiving it. It was one of the things I wanted to change about the restaurant. I didn't want us to be in the business of serving our own egos. I wanted to be in the business of serving people. I also genuinely believe that nothing, no experience can ever be great if it's not an authentic reflection of the person serving it. And what I mean by that is if it's not the experience I want to receive, then I shouldn't be giving it to other people. 
if the whole idea of that gesture is to extend the experience to the next morning, what do I crave in the morning? I crave a bowl of granola. And so now serving something as humble as granola at the end of an extraordinarily high-end meal, by the way, that goes back to what I said before, people taking themselves too seriously. It's not normally what you do, but if we can make the best granola and end what is otherwise an extraordinarily high-end and formal experience with the most gracious and humble touch, giving them something they actually look forward to eating in the morning and something that is more about them than it is about us, that would be a win. And it ended up being a win. That granola became one of the things that people looked forward to most about their meals. I love Madison Park in the book. I say that oftentimes when people posted pictures of their meal on Instagram, the picture of how they did their granola in the morning was their final shot. Um, the two lessons there are simple. One, do whatever it takes to make sure the experience extends beyond what is traditionally considered to be the end. And when you're doing it, honestly, when you're doing anything, when you're touching any of the myriad of touch points a brand has with its customer, make sure that you're serving that customer and not your own ego. Uh, it's with gratitude that I say to Susan Cain, Seth Godin, Dan Pink, Liz Wiseman, Arina Huffington, Deepak Chopra, Matthew McConaughey, Robin Sharma, to my favorite interview with Colin Cowie, everyone take one step to the left. Hmm. To Tony Robbins and to Bear Grylls and Brene Brown who are on the come as guests to this podcast, you better raise your game because my favorite episode of 250 is Will Gudera, the owner of the best restaurant in the world <laughs> in the book, Unreasonable Hospitality. I kid you not, this is uh, my favorite interview thus far. If you want to transform the value proposition of your organization, whether you are in healthcare or technology or customer service, you're a SaaS company, whether you're selling granola or tennis rackets, you want to make sure that uh, you are creating, to quote both Colin and now Will, unreasonable hospitality that is the new luxury. Thanks for joining us today. Dude, thank you very, very much for having me. And. I, I talk about how no one gets to a point where they don't crave affirmation. Those words mean a lot. And well, thank you all for listening. Thank you, Will. Thank you. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. Mm -hmm.